Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us on this Franchise Radio Show. Um, how to avoid disputes or resolve them. Paul Cott from Law on Lydiard. I'm delighted to have Paul here today. And Paul graduated from law at Deakin University in Geelong some 15 years ago. Um, he heads up a small specialised law firm in regional Australia, in Victoria, in Ballarat, a beautiful part of the world. And he, he works with clients mainly assisting people in a whole range of things, I have to say. So he's very versatile um, in employment law, all sorts of litigation, you know, the usual domestic buildings disputes and building law advice, wills, estates, and all that sort of thing. And he's passionate about getting a great outcome for his clients. Um, he's also an adjunct lecturer uh, at the College of Law in Victoria, where he, he assesses and mentors students as they come to the end of their um, of, of their qualifications, gaining admission to practice in law. Um, he's also what's known as a in-practice component mentor, sharing his knowledge and so on. He runs his own podcast as well, um, under the name of Lydiard Law, um, where he gives uh, sort of non-lawyers tips and tricks for people, helping them overcome and resolve common legal disputes and that sort of thing, and a whole range of things. Um, in fact, congratulations, because he's just about to do his 50th ep episode. So that's quite an achievement. Um, and he's been running that for a couple of years. So he also volunteers locally at the community centre, uh, giving legal advice to the community. In his spare time, he's a, uh, his, 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 his dog, Charlie, he tells me, is, <laughs> is a big part of his life. And he follows the Australian Football League, AFL, passionate Geelong supporter. Um, those of you overseas, if you're not quite sure about AFL, you probably know as much about that as I know about Gridiron. You better Google it and have a look because it's a fascinating game. So, um, Paul, welcome to you today. Thanks so much for making your time available and joining us. Uh, thanks very much, Brian, for let, uh, inviting me on. I really appreciate it. It's been um, a real boon. Thanks. Yeah, look, the benefit's ours because I, I, I know there are a lot of things here we're going to run through which will clarify things for people um, because, you know, law, like everything, is a moving feast and interpretations of law and levels of disputes, particularly as the world's been through a couple of years of quite difficult, challenging times. And I think lots of things pop up during that which often wouldn't occur because pe people get into unusual situations. So um, uh, I'd, I'd like to kick off really with the core. Um, it, it sounds an obvious question, but I think to hear your view on this is important. Why should people avoid legal disputes if at all possible? Because um, surely there are times when a contested court action, you know, is, is what you have to do. There are some benefits. Um, what's, your, what's your response to that? So there's multiple reasons why people should avoid legal disputes, and that is that, you know, the more that they escalate, the longer they go, um, the higher up if it goes into court, um, in the court hierarchy it goes, it just becomes more costlier and stressful. Um, and all the, the, the time and energy and the business resources and, and um, other resources that you're throwing at this dispute, which in the end may not, bear any fruit for you um, just increases exponentially um, and you know to get back to or for business people to be involved in you know running their business be involved in the core activities you know legal disputes take you away from all that um, and focus on other things you've got to spend time and money on engaging lawyers and meeting up with them and giving them documents and attending hearings and all this type of stuff um, it's, it's really seriously, in my experience in practice, it's really 
come to notice that you know, if, if you can avoid them, um, please do so. Of course, at the same time, there's some people who, um, you know, if you're a respondent or a defendant, you don't have a choice but to be engaged with it. Um, and if you are, try to resolve it um, by some open, honest, transparent communications at the start. Other than that, then um, sometimes you don't have a choice. And of course, as you say, there are some circumstances where you want to be, and it serves not only um, your the party's interest, but the wider public interest if um, matters are litigated. So I will give an example, which is related to my area of practice, but the matter went all the way to the High Court. And I don't know the parties, I don't know the lawyers, but um, it's a case called Work Pack um, and Risado, where it went to the High Court on the issue of casual employment. And it really now has a result of that case, which confirms the legislation, is that we now have a, an actual written definition of what a casual employee is. Um, if that litigation hadn't occurred, um, which also resulted in legislation being passed to reverse the effect of previous full federal court decisions, we may not have a legislative definition, which we never really have had, of what a casual employee is. So that's really served a wider public interest um, to have that case litigated all the way through to the end of the High Court, even though the parties obviously spent a lot of time and money doing so. But the parties did get their dispute resolved, of course, um, and now they can move on. But it's, it's really resulted um, in you know a wider statement that people can now say, well, this is what a casual employee actually is. Um, not as opposed to in the past where it was really back to case law um, and trying to distill various principles um, out, out of case law in the past. So it's really um, resulted in an improvement. Yeah, th thanks, because that is, that is pertinent. Um, but I might add here, for those of you who are not in Australia, that the, the legal systems, whilst there are differences, the principles that we're talking about here apply wherever you are, North America, Europe, whatever it might be, in the Pacific Islands uh, or in Southeast Asia. Um, so it's the concepts and the principles. And I think one point I would make to you is that some, some, some people in the legal fraternity are very adversarial. So they're going to encourage litigation um, because they're looking to optimise their fees and so forth. Not to say that anyone's particular uh, lawyer they retain has that approach, but it's not uncommon. Um, so it's important to make sure you manage this process. And we're, what we're talking about here in resolving these disputes before they become expensive is something that you've really got to have an understanding of what your options are or where you can go to find someone in the legal fraternity who is going to be supportive of that early resolution. And um, I suppose that when we talk about that, um, it's, it's, um, it's termed in Australia currently as early dispute resolution. Um, it used to be called alternative dispute resolution. And I suppose early is the key word here. So um, it's something that's quite important. Perhaps you can tell me some of the avenues that are open in principle to people faced with a dispute, um, Paul? So th there are um, various options. Um, and a lot of these processes can be used before or outside the court process. Um, of course, some of them are a necessary part of the court process. So the, the first one we have um, is mediation. Um, and that is where you have an independent third party facilitator assisting the parties to negotiate a settlement. So that mediator does not make a decision. 
Um, they don't make a binding determination. Um, as a result of the mediation, obviously, um, there is a resolution to the dispute where some terms of settlement are entered into. And so in that way, it does resolve the dispute. Um, and, and mediation can be utilised outside court. So the parties can just say, look, let's have a mediation before this gets to court to try to prevent the whole um, court process coming into play. Once the court process is underway or the tribunal process, when I say tribunal, I mean bodies such as BCAT and the Fair Work Commission, then mediation will be, or maybe conciliation, will be a necessary part of that process. You won't have a choice but to engage in those processes. And you made a good point that it's now called early dispute resolution. In the past, it used to be called alternative because it was an alternative to court determination. So it was almost like secondary. And now it's the primary method, um, really, of dispute determination. It harks back to what we said before, the significant time, cost, and energy involved in, in, a court, in the court process can be avoided by resolving disputes earlier. Um, and most cases do settle. I don't know what the statistics are, but they're certainly 50% or above. Most cases do settle before determination. In the Fair Work Commission, for example, um, stats have shown in the past that um, between 70 and 90% of cases resolve at conciliation. So it's certainly early dispute resolution is definitely the technically correct way to determine it. And then we have conciliation, which is sort of the next step up the chain, I suppose, of formality where the independent third party facilitator will have some knowledge of the area, um, some experience and so forth in the particular area of dispute. So for example, again, I'll go back to the Fair Work Commission. Um, they have conciliation is almost a necessary part of most applications, unfair dismissal and the like, where that independent third party facilitator will be either a staff member of the Fair Work Commission or a um, a consultant dispute resolution person who may well, and in most cases, um, used to be an employment lawyer, used to be an industrial um, worker of some description. So they know what the Fair Work Act is about. They know how the, the decisions are made um, and they know how cases may well be decided if it went to the next stage. And so that can really give parties reality check and to say, well, these are the weaknesses and the strengths of your case. And these are the things that you may need to consider if you wanted to um, carry on. And then um, we have uh, up the chain, probably the last step in the chain before court determination is arbitration, which is in a sense, it's, it's a misnomer to call it early dispute resolution in the sense that um, the outcome of an arbitration is only decided by what the parties submit, but it is taken out of the party's control in that there is a binding decision made by the arbitrator. So in, in that sense, um, the parties don't resolve it themselves. Um, they decide what evidence to submit to the, to the um, arbitrator. The arbitrator may well be um, a barrister or somebody who's qualified to hear arbitrations. The idea about arbitration though, consistent with all the other EDR processes is that the, um, the cost and the time and the energy spent on the matter are, are cut short, sometimes significantly cut short. Um, and so that fits in with the idea of um, an earlier dispute resolution. 
And then going back to the, I guess, the overarching early dispute resolution process, which is negotiation, which can happen obviously at any stage. In fact, a lot of the communications and the discussions that may be had between the parties and or between their lawyers um, is all really under the umbrella term negotiation, which can happen, which can happen at any, any stage, all the way through the process, all the way through to potentially the day of the court, um, the old term settled on the door of the court means that the parties could have negotiated a settlement on the morning of the, of the court hearing um, commencing. Um, arbitration can start all the way back to, uh, sorry, negotiation can start all the way back to the commencement of the dispute all the way through to the end. And it can involve any process. It's more, much more informal. Yeah, I must say from my experience, I've, one way or another as a party of either side of the fence or from a professional point of view, been involved in a few of these and uh, they have their pros and cons and uh, it is really galling when you've had a dispute with someone that's dragged on for months you've had lawyers involved at numerous meetings and then you get to the you get to the courthouse and you get a you get a settlement offered to you <laughs> and you sort of you think why well, if they'd only offered this six months ago we could have cut our losses <laughs> and and saved a whole lot of the episode so uh, but that leads to another thing I mean, one thing I've seen with mediation where um, maybe, you know, maybe if let's say it's in franchising and it's a franchise or is it's not the most ethical, uh, um, perhaps, or is in a bit of deep water for whatever reasons. Um, and maybe their franchisee or a number of them have, have got a dispute with them and it's gone to mediation that they will can often use that process to string time out because they've got no intention. And they haven't declared that, of course, but in complying. So it means that the, the, you know, the, the franchisees have to go and resort to more issues. And then maybe there's another mediation meeting and the, 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 the franchisor or whoever that party might be. Again, you know, they submit to it, they go along, but all they're doing is stalling. Um, what, what, what's your view on that? How, how can someone best avoid that sort of situation, Paul? Uh, well, I, I think it comes down to how many mediations you're going to have. So, you know, if you get a sense in advance that the party may use mediation as a way to stall, then you, you, you don't engage in it. Um, you don't have to mediate at any point, apart from the fact that once a court action is initiated, there'll be compulsory mediation. You have the mediation. If the party is stalling, well, then... We just have to go to the next stage and get it determined. So um, human nature being what it is, um, parties do do that. They may just think, well, I'll just, you know, stall for time. And I guess at the moment too, with the um, COVID pandemic, pandemic, and you know, with state you're in, matters um, do take a lot more time to, to, to occur. And so that tactic of stalling may become more common. Um, there's not really a lot that, parties and or the court can do, um, I guess it, it really depends on how they're stalling for time. Um, you know, a mediation will happen and a lot of the courts now have case management processes. And if, they, if the court gets a sense that a party is trying to avoid mediation and trying to stall the time that way, then sometimes the court will just say, well, look, the mediation is going to be set down for a date and you can't adjourn it and therefore stall. Um, unless there's a substantial reason um, which, and which convinces the court that it is a valid reason to stall it. So um, 
I hope that hopefully that answers the question. But look, human nature being what it is, some parties don't want to face the reality of having to deal with a dispute um, for various reasons, and or don't want to face the reality that they may be um, in a legal claim that they may lose. Um, but but court, it's really good just to be alive to the fact: is the other party stalling? And I guess if you do have a trusted advisor or even advisors on board, really lean on them to say, look, I think this person's stalling, what options do we have? Yeah, look, I think that's that's important. Is that you, you, you've got to manage the process, otherwise you're going to be run around by people one way or another. And um, I suppose when we look at arbitration, it's, 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 it's similar in lots of ways to a court situation, except you haven't got all the formalities um, as you say, it's got it's got a level of determination. But um, what about things like you know, even arbitration? You're allowed to have your lawyer come along or someone to represent you. What's what's generally the process for that, uh, Paul? So there'll often be uh, rules as to how the media, sorry, how the arbitration will be conducted. Um, it also is in some to some extent in the discretion of the arbitrator. So. Sometimes the parties will agree on who the arbitrator is to be, and or sometimes the arbitrator may be chosen. Um, it may be, for example, uh, we had a dispute, it was in the partnership deed that um, an arbitration would have to happen in the event of a dispute, and then the identity arbitrator is to be a, um, is to be decided by the parties, and then in the event of a disagreement, to be appointed um, by the Law Institute of Victoria, for example, who will say, here's the arbitrator, or here are two or three names, and then obviously the parties then, then can agree on the arbitration. Um, so yes, there's obviously, sometimes there's rules set down, depending on the avenues where you do it, which um, in Victoria, we have a, a commercial arbitration scheme, which is run by a whole um, series of barristers in Victoria. And if you, um, which is a really great process, um, in fact, I've done a podcast episode uh, largely devoted to that very much, to that very scheme, which, which other states may have. Um, and then once you go into that scheme, you, you have a set of rules that you're abiding by, such as provision of documents and timeframes and costs and um, all those types of things. And they will set out a fairly prescriptive set of rules about arbitration and what's to occur. Yeah, no, that sounds helpful. So, so you, it may be wherever you happen to be, sorting out if there's some local organisation, national or state or regional or whatever it might be, where they have a sort of dispute resolution centre or something of that sort, where they can give you some guidance and lay some, some guidelines. So I suppose I, I've been enthusiastic about arbitration, having witnessed some cases where people have strung these things out for long periods of time and caused a lot of grief and so forth. I mean, generally there's a dispute because it's something that needs to be resolved. And sometimes it may be historic, but sometimes it has a huge impact on day-to-day -day ongoing uh, business or lives. So uh, sorting out is good. And what about, I mean, if you're able to influence uh, any agreement, often these disputes are between people who've got contracts of some sort, and maybe, a, maybe it's a, um, a service provider, maybe it's a product supplier, um, whatever it may be. Is that an opportunity, Paul, where uh, the, the astute business person will be saying, I would like a clause in here that 
that nominates arbitration and nominates an arbitrator or something like that? Is that a sort of thing that can shortcut some of these some of these delays? Yes, um, definitely. It's it's not something that parties necessarily like to think about um, when they're entering into a contract or a new business relationship or whatever the description may be to say, well, what's going to happen in the event of a dispute? You know, the parties are all excited and there's this big commercial new new commercial opportunity on board that um, it's almost like when you enter into a marriage, you know, you don't want to be considering at that stage what's going to happen in the in the event of a breakdown of the relationship. But you know, the reality of it is that smart business people will at least turn their minds to what do we do and what's the process um, if or when in the unlikelihood, they may well say, that a dispute does arise, what, what is to happen? So um, again, what we talked about before with the partnership deed, sometimes they have that, um, or they might even be more prescriptive, prescriptive and for, for example, say, instead of arbitration or as well as you may even, parties may be able to agree on a choice. Um, so it almost like say, well, in the event of the dispute, the parties must try to resolve it amongst themselves. Secondly, the party can have a mediator cost to be, be shared between the parties 50% each. Thirdly, um, arbitration um, on the parties to agree. And then if they don't agree on who the arbitrator is, someone can be appointed, um, you know, sort of all, um, almost without, without the party's choice. Um, and so you, you can really provide all those types of things. It's a very smart thing to do at the outset, for sure. Yeah, look, I remember years ago, an advisor that I'd retained um, said to me or to a group of us in a situation, he said, you know, it's something that people can sometimes, you know, get their back up, like signing confidentiality agreements. They get resistant, they, they, they get suspicious. But, you know, he said, if you use it in terms of, you know, the other party, so saying, look, um, in the event that uh, maybe you're talking to John, and it's John and John and Harry, you say, look, John, in the event Harry f falls under a bus or something like that, said lightly, or slips on a banana skin, you want to better resolve it easily, don't you? Meanwhile, no. Harry is interested, of course, in getting John to uh, make some commitment as well. So it's it's a matter of the frame of mind, I think, that people have. Uh, um, and that's important, isn't it? Making sure that people are in the right headspace when they're discussing these things and not getting all uptight and defensive. What, what's, what's your view on that type of situation, Paul? Yeah, that's a good point because um, the, the thing you've got to do, the thing you have to keep in mind with these things that, you know, if we're going to do, do arbitration or appoint an arbitrator or have a particular venue for the arbitration or um, have a mediation or whatever it might be, is that it's not just, if one party suggests it, it's not just for their benefit, it's, it's, it's for the benefit of both parties. You know, it's not a one-sided thing here. We're not trying to impose something on you or take away your choice. Let, let, let's, let's work together to try to, you know, decide on all these things um, in the event of a breakdown. And then once you're doing that, if you then decide, well, you know, we're going to have this person, the arbitrator, and this is when we're going to do it, and this is where we're going to do it, then all of a sudden you start to perhaps potentially look at the other person in a slightly different light to say, well, hey, you know, we've disagreed on 50 points previously, but guess what we're doing now? We're actually agreeing on a few things. So maybe they're not such, such a bad person after all. Um, and maybe there is some potential for us to resolve this protracted um, 
you know, multifaceted dispute. So I think it can shift, assist in shifting the, the, the frame of mind around from just being very combative to, hey, you know, there is some possibility of us working together to resolve things. Yeah, so, so encouraging that sort of positive mindset and looking forward to saying, you know, won't it be great when this is all done and dusted? You'll look back and probably laugh about it, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So what, what about, um, I suppose, you know, people will, will sometimes try and resolve these things just one-on-one, um, which can be difficult. Emotions fly very, very quickly. What, what's your thoughts about, about that sort of avenue, Paul? Uh, uh, emotions... Are, are always there, and even if it's a business dispute that is purely about money, um, the the emotions can still be as high as ever because behind the the monetary dispute is um, particular things so that really signify what um, in negotiation um, language it's it's interests. So focus on interests rather than positions, um, and once you do that, then really what's behind well you know if it's about money well what what is it about the money um one party may say well you know we're disputing over 100 grand if i but in my mind if i get 50 grand then i'll be happy and i can move on because that will enable me to do such and such a b and c um and so that's what their interest is whereas their position is 100 grand and so that can then help to Give some flexibility to the negotiation and and um, work out that parties can then work can work out that hey this dispute can be resolved after all because there are things behind the scenes so to speak as to what what the dispute actually means somebody might feel that hey I, I just want to be recognised or I I just want some recognition by the other party that they did the wrong thing sometimes it can be those types of things that can really be the drivers and if you can, if you can get to them. So take the emotion out of it, go back to commercial basics, but then also look behind both of those things and say, what's really driving it? And that way you not only take the emotions out of the dispute, which could potentially hinder resolution, the emotions that is, and put it around to say, well, now that we're looking at what the interests are and what the party's real concerns are, let's utilise that to, to help to resolve the dispute after all. Yeah, you know, it's, I guess I'm not a psychologist, but you probably observe a lot more of people with what you do in your profession there, Paul. But, you know, human beings have a, a habit of, we all know this, don't we, the, of wanting control and, and also, you know, there's the inclination to be competitive. So when those two locks are undone, I suppose, then it really is almost open warfare, isn't it? People are prepared to put a stake in the ground and they refuse to budge. Um, what, what, what's your approach with that sort of person? You know, someone who just will not give an inch. We can talk about past presidents of uh, certain parts of the world who've been a bit like that. Look, there are people out there who will not concede a point. They will not budge. Um, and in the end, um, you have to accept that. But having said that, if you have a good mediator, so I have been in med involved in mediation where a party has either not budged or um, there's one example that I have in mind where basically it was a my client and he said, oh, oh, my first offer is 20 cents. And then I said, well, you can't 
make that as your first offer or any offer that just crazy. you. I'll, I'll go up to a dollar. Anyway, long story short about that one is that the, the dispute ended up resolving, him paying a lot more money. So I didn't think he was going to budge. He was very, very, very headstrong. Um, a short, little, um, aggressive-looking, nasty-looking guy, quite intimidating. And he, in the end, we resolved the dispute where he just said, I'm going to pay some money to get rid of this problem. So even the ones that you feel that will not budge, they sometimes can. Secondly, if you have a good mediator, the, the, the reality of it a lot of the time with these mediations is it's not the lawyers who do most of the work, it's the mediator. The mediator is in the room privately, having private discussions that from a face you will not go back to the other party. It's the mediator and that person who won't budge. It's their discussions and what can come out of them, particularly, I think, are the key things. They can often, the mediator can often get that party who won't budge to do so. But in the end, if all, all else fails, if the party won't budge, and generally there is no legal requirement to negotiate in good faith. If they have to turn up at the mediation, they go through the process and they may go into it half-heartedly. In the end, then that's that party's choice to go and risk, um, you know, all the, all the rest of the things that go along with the court process. If they won't budge, then that's what, that's what is meant to happen. And I'm sure there's been plenty of stories where someone won't budge and they've never budged and they won't budge and they keep not budging until the matter settles on the door of the court um, on the morning and says, no, I don't really want to be involved in this. Uh, let, let's make a settlement offer now. Right. Yeah. So um, I think we can gather from this that there's a lot of ways, uh, options you've got rather than necessarily expensive court action to resolve issues. And uh, I think a lot of people do jump straight into, you know, towards the process of litigation fairly quickly. So it's up to you, really, if you're faced with that situation to do your best to manage it, I think. Um, so um, anything you'd like to add, Paul? We've covered quite a bit of ground, but I know you're a vast resource of knowledge. Um, anything else you'd like to add to our conversation before we round up? Uh, so a couple of things. So look, there, there are avenues of assistance. There are avenues of ways to resolve disputes um, earlier. There are people out there willing to help. Um, do a little bit of research and find out what are the avenues and how can I get assistance to resolve the dispute where you might say the other party's not budging. Secondly, and I guess it's hit and miss, but again, you can do your research, is that, and some lawyers have a, have a bad name for, you know, and I've heard it said to me before that in the Fair Work Commission, that on the odd occasion, a conciliator will say straight out to me, generally we find lawyers are not helpful in these disputes because they're too adversarial. But not, not all lawyers by any means um, are, are adversarial. I'm not, and I um, can be if I have to be, but not all lawyers are. And in the end, we are in the business of resolving disputes. We are not in the business of escalating disputes that is not in the client's best interest. We have a legal and ethical obligations to act in the client's best interest. And if it's in their best interest overall, which it usually is to resolve a dispute early, then that lawyer has a duty to at least try. So it's it's not all doom and gloom if you're in a nasty dispute where the other party won't budge and it's difficult and you're spending a lot of time on it, very stressful. It can shift and there is hope. It's not all doom and gloom. Yeah, well, look, one thing that I, I learned again, learned years ago, 
working with people who were referring to leap for legal advice, not necessarily in any dispute with me, was, you know, it can often be a mistake. You've got an uncle who's a lawyer or a sister-in-law or there's a next-door neighbour or someone you know from the 19th hole at the golf club. Often those people won't, won't have the ability to look at things objectively enough. Um, so I, my, my personal view, I don't know what your thoughts are, Paul, that really you want someone who is independent who's able to look at the picture and give you a fresh pair of eyes looking at what you've got, because it may well be that you're quietly distorted in your view of things. Oh, there's no doubt. And, and human nature being what it is, parties will think that they're in the right. They'll say, I'm in the right. I haven't done anything wrong. It's all the other guy's fault. And, and I, I, you know, want to screw him over or however they want to put it. But, and that's reminds me of um, a slightly different forum and each state has their own equivalence, which is in VCAT, Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal in VCAT. In domestic building disputes, um, you have a what's called a compulsory conference where the mediator is one of the members who won't hear that case, but they hear other cases. And I've had it said to me almost in these exact words, well, if I was hearing this case, this is what I'd decide. Obviously, it's only a guideline because they haven't heard um, the full amount of evidence. But they, then all of a sudden the parties say, well, gee, you know, like this guy really knows what he's talking about. And if we were before a member and this member has the same view as this guy, we might not win the case after all. So we may need to really think about this. And so it's a real reality check. Um, and it's a good reminder to the clients that, um, they may well be in the right and they may well have a really strong case and, and very little argument could be made against their case, but it's not a guarantee. I've seen good cases lose and I've seen bad cases win. Right. If, I'm, if I see my doctor and he refers me to a surgeon who says you need a knee replacement, I think I would probably find another surgeon to give me um, you know, a, second, a second opinion. What, what's your view on getting second opinions on preliminary sort of advice when you look into a point, a, a lawyer or, or someone of that nature, Paul? I often say to a client, if, they, if I get a sense or they, if they tell me they don't like what I'm saying, that's fair enough. You know, they don't have to listen to, to me. Um, they don't have to listen to a, a certain lawyer. And the law is that complex um, that um, reasonable minds can differ, um, as the saying goes. Um, and you could have 10 lawyers who have 10 different opinions. Um, so I'm all for second opinions. If that's what you want to do, then you may want to hear from two or three people and then form a view as to what, where, which way you want to take the matter. But I'm all for second opinions. Actually, I heard this the other day that um, in relation to the COVID pandemic at the moment that, you know, doctors, chief health officers and all those people just like lawyers and accountants and bankers and so forth, they all are all opinions and reasonable minds can differ. So I'm all for second opinions. Right. Okay. Well, look, you've given us a lot of opinions and suggestions and advice to, uh, to be able to draw upon, Paul. I really appreciate that. And I'm sure everyone will join me in saying thank you so much for just so freely sharing your, 
your vast knowledge and time. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. I think we've covered a lot more ground than I even anticipated. So um, I understand as well, you mentioned to me, you, you're ha happy to, uh, to speak to anyone that listens to this podcast that maybe would like to have a chat to you. Um, could you like to just outline the parameters of what your suggestion was? Yeah, and, and that is that um, if parties might be involved in some issue or even if it's not a dispute, they might say, well, what should I do here? What my options are here? I'm offering um, a free 15-minute telephone conversation just to explore options, um, no charge, and I won't look at the clock um, and be really strict about it. It gets 20 minutes, even up to 25 minutes. There'll still be no charge. Sometimes that's all that people need is to as you said before, someone to look at it with fresh eyes or fresh ears um, and give me some ideas as to another way to look at it. So that's what people can do. They can contact me on um, the best number is directly through to me is 0412-483-758. I'm happy to have a chat and explore options and give some, some preliminary thoughts and options to a person who may be a bit stuck. Excellent. Well, that's very generous of you. Look, and I might add, um, for those of you listening, um, if, if, you're for, if you're calling from outside Australia, it's 61 is the prefix and then 412-483-758. And Paul, Paul has a website, Lydiard Law, L-Y-D-I-A-R-D Law.com.au. And his email is the same, um, is paul at lydiardlaw.com.au. So otherwise you can always contact me as with any of our guests and I'll, um, I'll introduce you personally. So, Paul, just like to say thanks again. Really appreciate your time. Um, on behalf of everybody, just uh, give you a, a, a big hand. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, Thank you. look forward to perhaps catching up with you again sometime. And, uh, and we'll leave it for there today. Thank you. And everybody, look forward to speaking to you when we have our next Franchise Radio Show coming soon. 